Well, greetings and salutations, everybody. Welcome to the John Campia podcast on this fine Sunday. I'm, of course, your host, John Campia. And uh, you may have noticed I didn't have any podcasts up this week because, like I mentioned on my social media, I was gone. I was down in San Diego, California for Comic-Con, and I wasn't able to bring, like, all my gear and everything I would have needed to do. And I certainly didn't have the time to do like full versions of the podcast while I was down there. So I just had to put the podcast on hold. I did as many videos as I could and I couldn't bring all my gear. So all the videos you saw me shoot from down there at uh, Comic-Con, I actually shot those videos on my cell phone. I shot the videos on my cell phone. I did bring this audio recorder right here that you can see. I brought the audio recorder so I could still have some decent audio but I just didn't have the resources and I had to bring this little laptop that I have and it's incredibly slow at rendering compared to like the machine I have behind me. So like to render out a five minute video takes about 20 minutes. So to render out like a half hour podcast or a 20 minute podcast would take like an hour and a half to two hours. So I just didn't have that kind of time. So I thought, you know what? I'll just pick up on the podcast when I get back and I am now back. And uh, one of the interesting things that I had to do down in uh, San Diego, California was, and first of all, I had a great time at Comic-Con this year. I love going to San Diego Comic-Con. I just like being there because, and you might've heard me mention this before, but there's something that's incredibly good for the soul. Being around a hundred plus thousand people who are crowded in the streets and crowded in a convention center. And everywhere you go, everybody's smiling and everybody's happy and everybody's having a good time and having the time of their lives. There's just something really good about being in that type of an atmosphere, being around that kind of energy. It's just amazing because, you know, you walk down the streets and you're like, your shoulders shoulder and you're passing by hundreds of people and like, Without exception, they're all smiling and laughing and having a great time. You knew a lot of them probably had saved up all year and been planning for coming to this all year and came down with their friends or whatever, and they were just having a great time. There's something great about that. And of course, then being able to together with a whole bunch of strangers celebrate the world of creativity and celebrate the things that we love, whether it's television shows or movies or games or comics or what have you. And there's just something really great about that. And San Diego is a great town. I love getting down there, eating at a bunch of the great restaurants and all that kind of stuff. But here's the funny thing, though. I knew that going to Comic-Con I couldn't stay for Saturday and Saturday was the big day. Yesterday was obviously the big day because that's when the DC panel was and that's when the Marvel panel was. So I could go, but I couldn't be there for Saturday. Well, why couldn't I be there for Saturday? Because I knew there was going to be a ton of videos to make, like five, six, whatever videos to make about news that was coming out of those panels. And I knew that if I was down there on Saturday, I would be getting those videos up incredibly late, like really, really late. And the irony is that I had to leave Comic-Con. So yesterday morning at five in the morning, I got on a train, came back to Burbank, and I got back to Burbank like around eight o'clock in the morning. And being here 
with a, my Twitter feed in front of me and my actual editing computer, my editing machines and all that kind of stuff, my cameras that I could actually make videos a whole lot faster and get them up and have them done with much better quality. So I actually had to leave Comic-Con to do my videos on Comic-Con for the Saturday stuff, which was kind of weird and funny. But hey, listen, guys, this is the podcast. And for the most part, what I like to do in the podcast is take the questions that you guys send me. How do you get a question to me? It's really simple. Just email me anytime at the John Campia podcast at gmail.com. Send them on in and also make sure you're following me on social media on Facebook and Twitter because every once in a while I get on my social media and I ask you guys to send me questions there. All right. So with that out of the way, let's get to the first question of the day. And the first question today comes to us from Franz Stahl, who writes, could you talk about the box office performance of Cars 3? It seems absolutely catastrophic for Pixar, but nobody is talking about it. Yeah, man, you are not wrong. Well, first of all, let's talk about Cars 3 for a second. I am a huge fan of Pixar. I think that they are not only the best animation movie studio in the business, I think they might be the best movie studio in the business. When you look at their record, a huge high percentage of the movies that they produce are killer, are just great movies. And no other studio has that kind of success record. Not Disney proper, not Warner Brothers, not Universal, not Paramount. I mean, when the the percentage of films that Pixar makes that end up being amazing films is incredibly, a really big high number. So I love the company. Whether you're talking about films like Ratatouille, you're talking about The Incredibles, you're talking about Wally, or you're talking about Up, or you're talking about Toy Story 1, 2, or 3, or you're talking about Monsters, Inc., and yada, 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 it goes on and on and on. This studio just cranks out great stuff. The one big exception to that, and not that everything has been great, but the one glaring exception, I should say, has been their Cars franchise. Now, I didn't mind the first Cars movie. I thought the first Cars movie had some upside to it, although it wasn't great. The second Cars movie, I thought was quite poor. And then the third Cars movie, I thought was just a disaster. I I, there, I found nothing entertaining about Cars 3. And I'm a huge Pixar fan. I want to love the stuff that they produce. But I just thought it was, quite frankly, a piss poor movie. And it seems like I'm not the only one who kind of feels like Cars is kind of in the shallow end of the gene pool for Pixar when it comes to quality films. Because we saw a massive drop in the box office. Okay, so let's keep this. Let's put this in perspective. Okay. Cars 1 made $462 million worldwide. That's a pretty good number for an animated film like that. Cars 2 made even more money. It made $562 million at the worldwide box office. However, Cars 3 took a massive dump, and it was an expensive film to make too. Cars 3, okay, so Cars 2 made 562. Cars 3 dropped by more than half. Cars 3 made $223 million at the box office. It is a certified, for the amount of money that it costs to make that movie, it's a certified bomb for Pixar. And that is not something you're used to hearing associated to Pixar's name is a bomb. It just seems completely alien. The notion seems preposterous. But a, a bomb is what it was. And, you know, it begs the question, Understanding that, generally speaking, the population, you know, the movie-going audience didn't love the Cars films. I mean, little kids love them. That's that's great. But the great thing about Pixar is their appeal is to all generations. Children, teens, adults, seniors, everybody loves the good Pixar films. Cars, 
the franchise has been a big exception to that. It's been the one thing that's gone against the DNA of Pixar. And it seems like it's been a play just to play to the kids. So why would they make Cars 3 in the first place? I think the answer lies in John Lasseter. John Lasseter, who is the visionary genius behind Pixar, he's also the head of Disney Animation. So he's the head of both of those animation studios, Pixar and Disney. And the dude's a visionary and an absolute genius. But, you know, Cars is his baby. And I remember watching a bunch of the stuff, the behind the scenes stuff with the first Cars movie and John Lasseter saying this is a passion project for him. He grew up, you know, with his family in a family car going up and down Route 66 and, you know, the Americana of it all and what a deep, important place that holds in his heart and all that kind of crap. And it's not crap. It's good stuff. But, you know, it was a passion project for him. And he was going to be insistent on making a Cars 2. And I'm sure that despite the fact that everybody hated Cars 2, he wanted to make a Cars 3. And, you know, he's John Laster. He's the head guy and he is a genius. So if he says we're going to make Cars 3, you make Cars 3. I just really hope at this point that Lasseter has learned his lesson that the, we don't care about cars. We don't want to watch more cars movies. And I think with this one taking a financial bath, it's probably going to be the last cars movie we see, notwithstanding maybe some short films or some straight to home video stuff that they might do in the future. But as far as big budget feature film, you know, big major release films goes, I think thankfully this will be the last cars movie we see. All right. Thanks a lot for the question, man. The next question comes to us from Michael Pement, who writes, Hi, John. I love the show. Thank you so much, Michael. I watch it every day. What are your thoughts on the trailer for Darkest Hour? It looks like Gary Oldman could be getting his first Oscar, though, like you say, we won't really know until we see the movie. Thanks. All right. Thanks for the question, Michael. Yeah. For those of you who don't know what he's talking about, a new trailer last week came out for uh, Darkest Hour, which is a look at Winston Churchill and making movies and TV shows featuring Winston Churchill seems to be all the rage these days. I mean, with The Crown on TV, John Lithgow plays Winston Churchill in The Crown. He's great, by the way. You should check that out. So Gary Oldman is taking his turn at bat uh, with playing Winston Churchill. And the trailer blew me away. It looks amazing. You know, one of the things that threw me off in the trailer, though, a little bit was seeing J.K. Simmons. Now, J- seeing J.K. Simmons in anything is awesome. It's great. We just watched him, obviously, yesterday in that Justice League trailer, which is great to see him in there, too. But it's really weird because I've never seen J.K. Simmons do an English accent before. That was totally new for me. So that kind of took me a minute to wrap my head around that. But anyway, it's it's obviously doing during the movie takes place during some the really key moments during World War II and the the conflict with the German army and all that kind of crap. And the trailer to me, like I didn't know what to expect. I thought honestly, I'll be look, I thought it was going to be kind of a dry um like just history looking History films and films that look at real life events can be awesome. I'm usually a sucker for a lot of them, but for whatever reason, I just had this feeling that Darkest Hour would just be kind of a dry one. You know what I mean? But the trailer is anything but dry. And I had to remind myself a couple of times that the dude playing Winston Churchill 
was actually, you know, Sirius Black. I mean, it was Gary Oldman himself. And it that's just how good he's pulling that character off because you just, every scene he's in, it's like, you got to remind yourself again, that's Gary Oldman. That's Gary Oldman. And then he just plays it so well that even though it's just a trailer, you're getting sucked into the performance. And it seems like they did a really great job of playing with the tension and the scenario and the context. And it just, it feels great. Now, look, Again, I always like to say this. We've seen plenty of great trailers to bad movies. I'm not saying this movie's going to be awesome, but the trailer has been awesome so far. Gary Oldman looks incredible in it. I am really excited about this film. Now, I was curious about it before. Now I'm full-blown excited for it. Now, as far as the question goes, could this finally be Gary Oldman's Oscar? Well, I mean, there's two big things we got to keep in mind. Number one, we actually haven't seen him yet. I mean, maybe those are just his best moments in the trailer, and maybe he's not all that good in the movie, so we'll have to wait and see, although I suspect he's probably awesome in it. The other big thing, though, is we're still a couple of months away from Oscar season when the real contenders come out. So the question isn't really going to be how good is Gary Oldman, and this is what makes Oscar season always so tricky. The question ain't how good is Gary Oldman in this movie. The question is how good is everybody else in the movies they're going to do in these Oscar award season movies that are going to be coming out in a few months. That's going to be the big question. And if Gary Oldman, though, if he comes across in the entire movie the way he does in the trailer, then, yeah, I'm going to say he's got a shot. But again, it's impossible to say until we see the rest of the contenders. But if you have not seen the uh, the trailer for uh, Darkest Hour, get on YouTube, check it out. I'm sure you're going to be glad that you did. All right, let's move on to the next question. And the next question comes to us from Keith O'Neill, who writes, going on what you said about the Force Awakens opening weekend record, do you think The Last Jedi has a shot at even coming close to it? I think it will ride the momentum from The Force Awakens and come up a little short, maybe around 220 million opening weekend. The Force Awakens had Phantom Menace level hype around it, which I don't think we will ever see again. Thanks a lot for the question, Keith. Yeah, when you think about the opening weekend box office record that The Force Awakens has, it's kind of mind-boggling how big the number is. Because consider this. I mentioned this in a podcast last week, too, but think about this. The number three all-time opening weekend box office is The Avengers. That made $207 million. The second place movie only beats it by $1 million. That's Jurassic World, which made $208 million. The distance between second and third is $1 million. Then The Force Awakens, I believe it's $247 million. Beats it by almost, beats second place by almost $40 million. That is astronomical. Now, what we talked about a, a little over a week ago was, is it even physically possible for a movie to do much better than that on opening weekend, when you talk about the limited number of theaters and the limited number of seats and the limited number of hours in the day that can actually play screenings of a movie, like, can we ever actually see a movie break the record of The Force Awakens just from a physical point of view, from a practical point of view? Is it even possible? Even if everybody wanted to see the movie opening weekend, can it actually be facilitated? And that's a really great question. Now, so now we talk about is it possible that The Last Jedi, Star Wars Episode Eight, could it possibly be a threat? And I don't think it is. I really don't. Now, I do believe Star Wars The Last Jedi is going to make north of $200 million. It might even become the second biggest box office, opening weekend box office of all time. But I don't know if it can catch 
The Force Awakens, not because of the physical limitations of theater sizes and all that kind of nonsense, but more because something you mentioned in your question, the amount of hype that went into The Force Awakens, because it wasn't just a Star Wars movie. It was the first new Star Wars movie in forever, when for a long time, a lot of us thought we were never going to see another Star Wars movie again, because George Lucas said after Revenge of the Sith, that's it, we're done, not going to do it anymore. And so not only had it been forever, and not only had we thought we were never going to see another one again, but a lot of people, myself included, were looking at getting us new movies to get us past the prequels. I mean, so there's that as well. So you have all of that on top of just the natural buzz and natural, you know, power of it just being a Star Wars movie. And can that be captured again? I don't know that it can. Look, Star Wars The Last Jedi is going to do crazy good business. I believe it's going to, you know, top Jurassic World. But, you know, when you consider all the stuff from nostalgia to excitement to the how long everybody waited to trying to get over the disappointment of the prequels and all that kind of stuff. It's like it was a perfect storm to not only break the record, but demolish the record thoroughly. And while the new Star Wars movie, The Last Jedi, certainly has all the excitement of it being a new Star Wars movie and all the excitement of it being a big, popcorn summer blockbuster that everybody's excited for it doesn't have those same elements that the force awakens had going for it because we just had a star wars movie last year in rogue one and then we just had one a year before that in the force awakens we're now well past the prequels it's a different era now so i kind of agree with the sentiment of your question i do believe that the last jedi will do extremely well it'll maybe get 210 220 to break, you know, to go past Jurassic World, to go past Avengers. But I just don't know that that $247 million number is something that is even remotely realistic. But who knows? Maybe they'll crank out a couple more trailers and they'll be the best trailers anybody's ever seen in their lives. And it might change the narrative. For now, I do not think that The Last Jedi will catch The Force Awakens. Thanks a lot for the question. All right, we move on to the next question. And this next question comes to us from Dan Lin, who writes, I noticed you gave your ranking of the Spider-Man movies, but I want to know what's your ranking of the three actors to play Spider-Man? I remember when Civil War had just hit theaters and you said it was too early to say Tom Holland was the best Spider-Man portrayal, but now he has had a Spider-Man movie all to himself. How do we compare him to Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield? Yeah, that's a fair question. I I gave my listing, my rankings of how I would rank the Spider-Man movies. To me, the number one Spider-Man movie is still Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2. I still think that's the best one. But I do believe the new Spider-Man Homecoming is the second best one. And I go back and forth on third place because sometimes I say Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 1 is in third. Sometimes I think, no, Mark Webb's The Amazing Spider-Man 1 is in third. Today, I'm going to go Mark Webb's The Amazing Spider-Man 1 in third, then Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 1 in fourth. Then in fifth place, we've got uh, The Amazing Spider-Man 2. And then in dead last, we have Spider-Man 3. That's how I would rank the Spider-Man movies. But how do we rank the performers? Okay, there are two different questions that I'm not quite sure which question you're asking, but there are two possible questions. 
Question number one, out of Tom Holland, Tobey Maguire, and Andrew Garfield, who is the best actor? Then the other possible question is, out of those three guys, who gave us the best performance in a Spider-Man movie? Because those are two different questions, and I would give them different answers. Because if you were to ask me just straight up, out of those three actors, Spider-Man or not, who is the best actor? How would we rank them as actors? Uh, to me, no question. Andrew Garfield's the best actor out of three of them. Uh, this guy should already have an Oscar on his mantle, to be honest with you. I think he got robbed uh, for his performance in The Social Network. Uh, he should have won Best Supporting Actor that year, uh, but whatever. Uh, so, and he's got a, a couple of things. And then he was in Hacksaw Ridge last year when he got, he did get nominated for for uh, Best Actor for that, I believe. I have well-deserved that he got nominated. The dude's incredible. He's going to have Oscars on his mantle soon enough. So to me, no question, Andrew Garfield is the best actor overall in that group. Next, I would put Tobey Maguire and then next, Tom Holland. That's not a knock on Tom Holland, but Tom Holland doesn't have a big enough body of work yet to really say to put him above a Tobey Maguire who, do, who does have a larger body of work. So that's how I would rank them as far as just straight up who's the best actor. However, my answer would differ if we're just going on who does the best Peter Parker slash Spider-Man. Who gave us the best incarnation of Peter Parker slash Spider-Man? And my uh, my answer is going to look quite different from the best actor overall thing. My number one now, because remember, when Civil War came out and everybody's going, oh my God, Tom Holland's the best Spider-Man ever. I was the one going, hold your horses, everybody. He was in two scenes in Civil War. Amazing scenes, but two scenes. Everybody catch your breath for a second. Okay, let's not get carried away. It's too small of a sample size. Well, now I've seen Spider-Man Homecoming. And you know what? I just think he's given us the best Peter Parker slash Spider-Man yet. I think his interpretation and his manifestation of Peter Parker slash Spider-Man is the best we've seen yet. Not that I think Homecoming is the best Spider-Man movie so far, because I still think Spider-Man 2 takes that crown. But, you know, I just look at what Tom Holland did. He so embodied Peter Parker. He so embodied the spirit of Spider-Man. And I'm sure part of that is because he was building off of and being able to watch and study from the work that was done before him by Tobey Maguire and by Andrew Garfield. But I would say, yeah, number one would probably be uh, Tom Holland. Number two, and I know a lot of people are going to disagree with me on this, and that's fine, but I would say Andrew Garfield. I, ju I just felt, again... Not that any of Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man movies were as good as Spider-Man 2, which was a Tobey Maguire movie, but I just thought that Andrew Garfield really got Peter Parker. I just really think he got it. Now, I think Tom Holland went even above and beyond that, but I just really felt like he got it. And then in third would be Tobey Maguire, who also did a great job in the movies. And I think what Tobey Maguire did was he kind of gave his version of Peter Parker. Like I, I remember... All the time watching those original movies, I never really felt like I was watching Peter Parker when Tobey Maguire was playing it. I always felt like it's a Tobey Maguire version of Peter Parker, which served the movies great because his movies were wonderful. Again, I think Spider-Man 2, which is a Tobey Maguire one, is the best Spider-Man movie we've ever had. So, yes, best overall actor, I would go Andrew Garfield, Tobey Maguire, Tom Holland, Best performance as Spider-Man, I would go Tom Holland, Andrew Garfield, Tobey Maguire. But all three of them great in both categories. I'm super happy with it. I love, 
you know, the first two Spider-Man films, not the third one. I like, I really love the first The Amazing Spider-Man, not so much for the second The Amazing Spider-Man. And I really love Spider-Man Homecoming. So that's how I would rank them. But I'm curious, what do you guys think? How would you answer that question? Both versions, best over, I almost did this, best overall actor and best, and number two, should have done it this order instead. Best overall actor and best performance as Peter Parker. Jump into the comments section and let me know how you guys would rank them. Because I'm sure it's subjective. I'm sure you guys will have different answers than me. And that's the best part about being film fans. All right, let's move on to the next question. And the next question comes to us from Duncan Butler, who writes, My question is regarding Blade Runner 2049. Not to spoil anything from the original film, but do you think we'll get a better idea of who Harrison Ford's Deckard is in this new film? Also, I know you aren't the biggest Blade Runner fan, but are you excited for the sequel? Um, Yeah, I'm one of the few mutants in the world that I'm not a big fan of Blade Runner. I've never liked the original Blade Runner film. And all my friends and all my colleagues and people who are much smarter than me love Blade. I know it's sacrilegious to say anything other than Blade Runner is a classic. And it is a classic. There's no doubt about it. There's no doubting the importance that that movie plays and the place it has in history. But I'm not going to lie to you guys just to try to look cool. I'm going to be honest with you. And my honest thing is, even though I know tons of people love it, it's just never clicked with me. So that's my kind of, you know, experience with Blade Runner and approaching that. Now, the first trailer I remember came out for Blade Runner 2049 a while ago. And I also was not impressed with the trailer. I did not think the trailer looked at all interesting. And I remember thinking, I only think people are buzzing about it and hyping about it because of the name Blade Runner's in it. If this movie had any other title and you saw that same trailer, I didn't think anybody would be talking about it. But then the new trailer came out like last week or two weeks ago or something like that. I'm on board. I like the trailer a lot. This trailer, for whatever reason, I can't quantify why, but this second trailer did a lot more for me as a potential new audience member. Like it just suggested some things and showed me pieces of the puzzle that got me, you know, salivating a little bit that I wanted to see it. And so job well done on the second trailer because I'm not a traditional Blade Runner fan and I did not like the first trailer, but this trailer hooked me. And for the first time ever since they started talking about doing another Blade Runner movie, I'm really interested in seeing this film. That's how good I thought this second trailer was. Now, as far as your question about do I think that this movie is going to give us any more, you know, insight into who Decker is? And, you know, at this, the movie is decades old, so I'm not going to worry about being spoiled, okay? If you're worried about having some of the original Blade Runner spoiled for you, just fast forward for a bit here. But uh, the movie is forever old. I thought that question was already answered by Ridley Scott a while ago. I thought Ridley Scott came out and could pretty much confirm that, yeah, Harrison Ford's Deckard is a replicant. He is a replicant. And that would make a lot of sense because in this trailer, when now Harrison Ford's character is in hiding and he says, I've been hunted. That sounds like something that would happen to a replicant. So I think he is a replicant, but he's the only replicant. Because remember, replicants burn out fast and they die quick. And I think the reason 
He's in hiding. And I think the reason Harrison Ford's character is going to be important to the movie is because there's something different about Harrison Ford and they want to find him and capture him to figure out why does he, as a replicant, live so long when all the other ones don't? That's kind of what I'm just speculating. I'm just guessing. I haven't, I don't have any insider information on the movie. That's just my guess, but I think that's the way they're going with it. And if it is, I'm really fascinated by it. And if it's not, I'm sure they have something else in mind too. So yeah, sign me up. I'm all on board for this new Blade Runner movie, and that's what I think they're going to do with the Harrison Ford character. All right. The final question of the day comes to us from Chris Fleener, who writes, do you think Avengers Infinity War will be the movie where we finally get to see and hear Captain America yell out his famous line, Avengers Assemble? Well, you know, I think if you guys remember, uh, I think it was uh, Age of Ultron, Avengers Age of Ultron. They end that movie teasing that. Because remember, they're all standing around in the new headquarters and all the new Avengers are there. And Captain America goes, Avengers? And he's about to say something and then the credits roll, right? I think that was a really cute thing for them to do. You know, Marvel did their big panel yesterday at Comic-Con. And they showed the Infinity War footage again the same footage that they showed at D23. This time they showed it at Comic-Con, and once again, they did not release it for the wide audience to see. I'm cool with that. I mean, I'm butthurt about it because I want to see it badly, but I'm I'm cool with it. They're not ready for the whole world to see it yet. I get it. That's totally fine. That's their call. No problem. I get it. I can be patient. The movie's still a long ways off. I can wait. I'm sure I'm going to see a lot of stuff between now and when the movie eventually comes out. So I'm cool. I'm just excited to see it. That's all. But it really does raise the question about not just will we see Captain America get to utter his famous phrase, Avengers Assemble, especially when you consider the context going into it. Like the Avengers right now are divided. You still have Iron Man's side. You got Captain America's side, who's still a fugitive from the law, you know, all this kind of stuff. So there brings more additional symbolic meaning to then Captain America stepping up and not just saying to Avengers, but saying to a divided Avengers, Avengers assemble. I mean, that would be, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. Like you, you can't see, but I, honestly, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. That would have added symbolic meaning. It would be really, really cool to see that. Do I think they're going to do that? It's tough. I mean, because without seeing the footage, I'm not really getting a sense about how far into the story Avengers 3 is going to be and then how much is going to be left over for Avengers 4. Like right now, for instance, I simply don't know if in Avengers 3, which is being called Infinity War, if we're going to see the two different sides and all the, the, the you know, the warring fractions within the Avengers come together to fight Thanos... Or is Avengers 3 going to be different people trying their own ways to stop Thanos, but they don't come together yet, and they ultimately come together in Avengers 4? So, I don't know yet. So, in order to answer the idea, are we going to get to see Captain America yell out Avengers Assemble? I think I'm going to have to see a trailer first to kind of get an idea about what we're going to get. What are we going to get? In Avengers, are we going to get a movie where we see the Avengers reunited to all come together to fight Thanos? Or are we going to get a movie where we're seeing all these various different superheroes who are used to winning battles individually and maybe as smaller subgroups try to take on the threat that Thanos poses and fail, which then sets us up for Avengers 4, which then they all come together and do something. I mean, I, I just don't know yet. 
So it's impossible to answer the question, do I hope? But I do, I will say this. I think somewhere, whether it's in Avengers 3 or whether it's in Avengers 4, I think somewhere in there, we are going to see finally Steve Rogers yell out the mighty battle cry, Avengers Assemble. And I think you're going to hear theaters across the country erupt in joyous celebration when it actually does. But yeah, at this point, though, we're still asking ourselves, what are we going to get in this Avengers Infinity movie? Really, what are we going to get? And uh, I'm excited to find out the answer to that. Anyway, guys, that will do it for me for this installment of the John Campion Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Listen, guys, I want to remind you that, hey, if you're watching this, this means you got the internet and you got either a computer or a mobile phone or something like you're rich. We are rich people. There are a lot of people in the world who are not. And there are children around the world who are like starving. And I, I know if you're like me, and I'm sure a lot of you guys are, you've always wondered, but it seems like such a big daunting problem. Well, thank goodness there's this app called Share the Meal. It makes changing the world really easy and really satisfying to do at the same time. All you do is you pull out your phone, you open up the Share the Meal app, you just tap the button that says Share the Meal, and you donate $3.50. And that $3.50 feeds a hungry kid for a week. Just like that, you've changed the world for somebody. And you, you know, for me personally, I just make going out to eat my reminder to pull out my phone and hit Share the Meal. So it's like I'm adding $3.50 to my food bill when I go to eat. Except instead of just getting, you know, uh, an extra hot dog, I'm actually feeding a kid for a week, which is amazing. I got addicted to it. I think you'll get addicted to it too, because I know all of us, deep down, we want to make the world a better place for somebody, and there's no easier way to do it. Hey guys, once again, if you want to get an email to me, just email me, email me anytime at the John Campy Podcast at gmail.com. Follow me on social media, on Facebook and on Twitter at John Campia. While you're at here, while you're here, please click subscribe, subscribe to my YouTube channel. And if you like this show, please, by all means, share it around, put it on your Facebook page, put it on your Twitter page, do whatever you'd like to do with it. That would be awesome. So anyway, guys, that'll do it for me for today. I'll be back again next time. And until then, bye-bye.